everyone and welcome to episode three of the food and life podcast and once again i'm very excited about today's interview and i'll be interviewing a miller so if you're like me you love carbs basically i love pasta i love cookies i love sweets i try not to eat too many sweets but i'm a big fan i'll be honest but do you ever stop and think and wonder where these grains come from how do we get the flowers in so many products that we eat all the time today we're going to dive into that and we're going to talk to mark hayhoe a fourth generation miller and the owner of k2 milling in beaton ontario just outside of toronto so let's dive in and chat about milling today Hi everyone, I'm here with Mark Hayhoe. He's the owner of K2 Milling. And this is my second or third trip out to his mill in Beaton, Ontario. And I'm really looking forward to chatting with him today because he really is a master miller and he has such an interesting story about the history of milling and his family. And so let's get started. I thought it would be really interesting for our listeners if we could chat about the history of milling in your family to begin with. Milling started in 1935 in my family. My grandfather, um, Harold Hale, finished University of Toronto as an engineer. It was the middle of the Depression, and he couldn't get any work. And his father's company was a coffee, tea, and spice company that actually started in Toronto in 1891. But there was no work even at the family business. So somehow, we're not sure exactly how he found that a mill was for sale in the village of Pine Grove. It was not running, it was shut down. Pine Grove is uh, now part of Woodbridge or Vaughan. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's on the East Humber River and the Humber River actually joins in Woodbridge and then meanders through West Toronto and ends up in Lake Ontario, right on the lake shore, just west of the CNE grounds. It used to be called the Gardner Hump, but they removed it on the road there. Anyways, it's right by Grenadier Pond on High Park. And anyways, my grandfather found this mill for sale in Pine Grove. Knew nothing about flour milling, but he scrounged the money together anyways and bought the property and the closed flour mill. And as an engineer, I guess he figured things out quickly and started milling again. And he made a full-time, full-life career of it. He worked till about, I would say about 1985, so about 50 years. He worked at, uh, it was originally called Hayhoe Brothers because his two brothers joined him shortly afterwards. Mm -hmm. And they worked with uh, my grandfather till the early 60s. When they left, my grandfather bought them out and my dad joined the company. And my father had gone to school at University of Guelph and University of Western Ontario. And when he was finished in 1964, he basically started his career at Hayhill Mills and he worked there till about 1992. My dad got sick unfortunately with Parkinson's disease so his career was cut short and mine because of that started early. (laughs) So I finished university in 91 and started full-time at Hayhill Mills in Woodbridge and worked there till 2007 when we sold Hayhoe Mills to Parrish and Heimbecker, which is a large Canadian agricultural company. And from 2007 until now, I've been operating K2 Milling. Exciting. Exciting. And I remember last time we met, we also talked about milling in Ontario and Canada in general. Do you want to provide us or talk about that and how milling has changed? Flour milling's a very, very old vocation. It's probably you know, one of the first mechanized tasks of man after perhaps 
organized fishing and hunting. And it started with just two rocks being struck together with grain in between because prehistoric man realized that that was a better way to grind grain than their teeth because if they always use their teeth, they didn't live much past 30. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I can't imagine. Yeah, nobody smiled back then. <laughs> and over time, of course, over centuries, they made some improvements. And stone milling actually stuck around a very, very long time. It evolved into circular stones and one stone turning, one stone stationary. And then in the late 19th century in Hungary, actually, they invented roller milling. And roller milling are just um, long, hard cylinders. They're originally porcelain. But they realized quite quickly that that was not good for longevity and they moved into metal and today most flour is milled using steel roller mills. K2 milling does not mill that way. We kind of went back to the past of using the principle of pulverization where you're striking the grain between a turning object and a stationary object and through some different applications and discovery realized that there was another way to mill flour that produced way more flavor and was um, a very quicker way to mill flour with less capital equipment so it was more economical because you didn't have as much capital roller milling is extremely complicated and a very long process mark one milling what i call it now is basically just the opposite of that it's four or five seconds in the mill instead of 15 minutes so you retain way more of the flavor and you're also able to mill many many different products on the exact same equipment okay and i know uh, last time we were talking you mentioned that a lot of mills in ontario have shut down over the years yeah about probably 150 years ago there were likely over 2,000 mills in ontario pretty much every village in ontario started with a mill being set up usually on the edge of a pond or on an active river where there was a lot of obviously water flow to provide power for the mill and over time and industrialization the introduction of electricity the uh, number of mills and the geography and the uh, population of Ontario started to shift more into the cities so a lot of these mills closed down in fact most of them have closed down so you've gone from over 2,000 mills in Ontario to about 25 today and wow. a huge drop and you have I would say probably 15 of them are industrial mills, so very, very large scale, milling hundreds of tons a day, where it takes me a few months to do hundreds of tons. <laughs> and it's just a different scale of milling, but it's also the evolution of what people wanted. Most of the demand was for really, really white flour. And to make really, really white flour, you have to use roller mills and gradual reduction milling systems to do that. And it also became very capital intensive. In fact, the first industrial mill in Ontario in 75 years was just completed last fall in Hamilton. And it was uh, close to $60 million to build that flour mill. So it's a big difference between that style of milling and K2 milling. You can set up a K2 mill for under a million dollars. So it's a completely different scale of investment, but it's also a completely different scale of production. And that new mill in Hamilton is designed to make really white flour, where we don't produce any white flour here. Interesting. No white flour at all. No white flour. Light flour, whole grain flour, but no white flour. 
Okay, so let's talk about the flour that you do mill because I'm standing here amongst bags of flour. So there's cloth bags, there's paper bags, and、uh, let's talk about the types of flour that you mill here. Basically, we mill probably close to two dozen different types of seeds into flour, all classes of wheat. So there's five classes of wheat. So we mill whole grain flour from wheat. We mill stone ground flour from wheat, and we also mill light flour from wheat, where we sift it once after producing a whole grain flour. We produce spelt flour, whole grain as well as light. We produce rye flour, whole grain or dark rye as well as light rye. We produce barley flour, oat flour,、I、corn flour. And your rye.、Flour. Did you like the oat flour, Mary? I absolutely loved it. Yes. Right answer. <laughs> Buckwheat flour, <laughs> corn meal, corn grits, corn flour. So different granulations of those grains. Hemp flour, non-active hemp, unfortunately. Flax flour, sunflower, pumpkin seed flour, cranberry flour, blueberry flour, shiitake mushroom flour,、uh, kelp flour. So plants from the sea. And we've also milled some very bizarre products such as.、Um, Bark from trees. Cinnamon, of course, is not bizarre, but it's a bark from trees. But we've also milled、uh, sycamore bark from a tree into a powder. It was for research and development into a pharmaceutical product.、Okay. So there was some phytochemical compound in this bark.、Mm-hmm. The company was interested in investigating. So we kind of do non-traditional milling, where larger mills don't have the equipment or don't have the interest in milling these niche market type flowers that we kind of thrive on. This is really interesting. So it's not just your traditional grains like wheat, rye, oats. It's also blueberries, shiitake mushroom flour, chickpea flour. So, can you tell us about the products that the end products of these flowers, these colorful flowers? Yep, absolutely. The blueberry and cranberry flowers actually milled from the skin or the pulp left over after they juice the fruit. So they they would press the blueberry or the cranberry and make blueberry juice or cranberry juice, and then the pulp left over. Like if you juice at home、yeah. with an orange, for example, you have that pulp left over. Yeah, or if you use a juicer. Yeah, if you use a juicer, the residue inside the juicer once you've squeezed out of all the juice, that material's just dried,、yeah. and then we mill it into a powder, and it goes into smoothies, dairy products like yogurt, goes into biscuits, cookies, crackers, pet snacks, wherever you want the、um, natural sweetness, natural color, because they're very strong natural colors in different food products, and basically, a lot of these. Products are difficult to mill, and I should just talk about that for a second. One of the easiest plant materials to mill in the world is wheat, and that's one of the reasons that wheat became so popular. An important reason was it is so easy to mill, and having milled all these other grains now over the last 15 years, I love milling wheat. <laughs> Why is that? Why is it so much easier to mill? They call it the staff of life. And maybe that's because for a miller to stay profitable, he had to mill wheat because that was his bread and butter. Yeah. <laughs> But in in all honesty, I think it was ju- it's just the composition of the seed, the way the、uh, the starch or what's called the endosperm is produced during the plant's growth, 
the thickness of the bran, the hardness of the actual starch. And hard wheat's a lot harder than soft wheat, so hard wheat is harder to mill than soft wheat. But both of them are relatively easy compared to all other seeds. There is very good flowing properties of the flour. So after it's milled, it flows very easily into a bin, into a bag. Oat flour, for example, is the exact opposite. It's really tricky to mill. It's really sticky. It's lumpy. It's sensitive to temperature and humidity. Mm. And we're actually supposed to mill some oat flour this afternoon, but I'm not looking forward to it. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it's basically just, you know, the ability to have the grain flow out of a silo easily. Wheat does that well. It's, it stores well. Some seeds don't store as well as others, and wheat's a very, very good storing grain as well, which I think is a part of its popularity as well. Very interesting. I never thought about it that way. And also, as far as I remember, are you Canada's largest certified organic mill? Um, as a specialty mill, maybe, but as a wheat mill, no. There are some other companies that produce a lot more certified organic flour from wheat than we do. Our specialty is kind of milling all these different types of plant materials, from the skins to the seeds to actual leaves. We've been certified organic since 1995, so 23 years, which I think is one of the older companies in Canada still actively milling that have been certified for that long. Yeah, I don't know any others. And also, as you're talking about these different flowers, I'm also wondering, are consumer preferences changing? Do you see people wanting to try new things that we weren't trying before? Yes. I kind of thought 15 years ago when I decided to exit industrial milling that food was changing, and I believe it still is. It hasn't changed as quickly as I thought, to be honest. But I thought with access of information improving exponentially through the internet, people could do their own research and realize how modern industrial food was being prepared, how it was made, you know, how it was milled. And that's happened. It hasn't happened as quickly, like I said, as I thought it would, but it is still shifting away from artificial color, over-processing, artificial flavoring, going towards more artisanal scale production of food where you're um, more hands-on and you have many smaller businesses being involved in the process rather than two or three large companies dominating food production. I think we've seen that very clearly in Canada, especially lately. Two large bread companies in Canada have been caught price-fixing bread, and I think that's indicative of over-concentration in a basic food product like bread. Something that people eat so much of. Yeah, Yeah, and I I think it's um, basically just... When you deindustrialize food again, you get more integrity, you get more authenticity because there's more hands-on interaction between the supplier, the customer, the processor, because you're much smaller scale. The process itself is much simpler so that it's more hands-on operation. You can see what's going on at any time right in front of you instead of being in an eight-story building where it's just impossible to stay on top of everything because the process is so complicated. And, you know, I think when you keep food production small, you create employment, therefore, for a lot more people from the primary part of agriculture, which is the most important part, growing the food, to the um, early processing stages like collecting it and cleaning it and storing it to the processing stage such as milling where you're changing the the state of the product so it's more usable it's hard to make cookies from just kernels of wheat you can do it but 
you'll probably be the only one eating those cookies. Wheat berries. <laughs> wheat berries. Mary's wheat berries cookies. I don't know. How come no one's buying them? <laughs> so. And uh, do you ever have problems sourcing organic grains? Or do people come to you with their grains already? That's actually a very good question because it is still quite difficult to source organic grains throughout the year. And I've tried really hard to build up kind of a, a collection of growers that I know and trust and have worked with for years. But, you know, they can't grow everything. And every year they have to change what they're growing on each field through what's called crop rotation. So I can't just rely on one or two farms close by to do that. But once you get outside of that very, very local network where you know the growers around you, it becomes tricky. They're kind of a, a loose system of brokers where they would find the grain from growers and then approach you to see if you're interested in it. A few years ago, I actually had my son build a website just called Mark To It. And basically it was to approve the access of buyer and seller for organic grain. So instead of me randomly calling different areas of Ontario where I thought there was product available, I would just post on this website I'm looking for 25 tons of organic rye and then growers in Ontario would see it mm -hmm. and there was no cost there was no middleman it was just connecting the mill with the grower and it's still there I still use it but I'm one of the only people that do use it but it is free and it, it was designed to make connecting grower and processor more productive in Ontario and hopefully it'll or derivatives of that design will improve on the situation but yeah the production of organic grains in Ontario is still so tiny it's it's uh, tricky to find like right now you cannot find organic hard spring wheat in Ontario for example so you have to go into Quebec or you have to go into Western Canada because there's no supply that I'm aware of in Ontario right now do you have to go outside Canada or no fortunately we don't have to do that because Western Canada is such a massive production area the bread basket mm -hmm. yeah western canada grows like 25 to 30 million tons a year of wheat and ontario grows one and a half to two million tons so it's kind of the same ratio in organic most of the organic wheat is grown out west and ontario mainly produces soft wheat and that's the same in conventional wheat as well but something like corazon for example doesn't grow in ontario but it's a quite popular organic grain it grows well in Saskatchewan and Alberta but not in Ontario interesting and I'd also like to ask you about our food system in general and how how you think it is how are we doing when it comes to food I think we're doing much better than we were even say five years ago and I think the quality of bread for example particularly natural bread that's made with wild yeast or what's also known as sourdough. The accessibility and availability of that has really improved in the last five years. I think the quality of natural bread in Ontario, in Toronto region particularly, is one of the highest in the world. And I've been in Europe three or four times in the last couple of years and have not found bread as high of quality as I found in the Toronto area. So I think that says a lot for what's happening in Ontario, which is really encouraging. And I think there's a great awareness in Ontario of the difference between artisanal food and industrial food. And you have a lot of chefs that are very, very committed 
and are actually walking the talk when it comes to using really, really good natural ingredients. And I think that gives me hope for the future. Organic agriculture is still less than 10% of people's food choices in Ontario, but that's up from you know, 2%, say 10, 12 years ago. So it is growing and it continues to grow. And that's very encouraging. A couple of years ago, we were at Queen's Park with the Organic Council of Ontario. Oh, yeah. You remember that, Mary? I do remember that, yeah. The MPPs that we met with, every time we sat down and met in the group, I would introduce the idea of an organic food credit. Because a lot of people, particularly families, don't buy organic food because of the cost. Right. But I... I was trying to encourage them to look at costs in a different way where you looked at comprehensive costs, where if more families chose organic food and the financial cost was offset through a food credit, the family therefore becomes healthier. So that lowers healthcare costs to the province. So they get a direct reduction in their healthcare expenditures if more people eat organic. And that also stimulates more demand for organic food produced in Ontario, which creates more employment for organic food producing individuals, whether it's in primary agriculture or in processing agriculture. So I think that still makes a lot of sense. And if you look at a country like Denmark, which is almost 30% organic food, to me, and I've never been there, but for me, that's the model to shoot for. Like even if we could get to 15%, um, I think that would be a huge victory for natural food and for the health of Ontario's economy and ecology. And do you have any ideas about how that could work? So would it be something that retailers are given to lower the cost at right at point of sale? Or would we apply for reimbursement? How, how would that work? Whatever... I guess would be the most cost effective. So if it's saving your receipts and when you, you file your income taxes every April, you would just you know apply your food credit based on the receipts you have for the organic food you purchased throughout the year. And then that way it would be a very simple one-time check. Or your point is very valid too. If the adjustment was given directly from point of sale, that could work too. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, it, it has to be visible and obviously not susceptible to abuse. But I think whatever makes the most sense from an administrative standpoint and execution standpoint would be the best route to go. And then also, I guess it would need to be something that's thought of for the long term. So on the way here, actually, I was listening to a show about the Green Ontario program and how our new government is slashing tax rebates for improvements to renovate homes to make them more energy efficient so then with changing government every four years and new programs something that's more long term would be beneficial too i think yes yeah i definitely agree with that non-political where it becomes you know part of the tax code i guess where you would have relief i know i think it's a federal tax relief for exercise for children i think that already exists and seems to work well so be, you know, you could maybe use that as a model for organic food and, you know, start at the provincial level and then maybe expand it or modify to include federal, federal area as well. Very interesting. Um, something that I'm curious about, too, is what their reaction was when you brought up the idea of an organic food credit. I think the right word is no reaction. Okay. <laughs> It, uh, I think sometimes these meetings with the MPPs, they must be kind of um, prepped. In other words, given a list of what's going to be talked about. And I don't think mine was on the list. 
So it wasn't, there wasn't really even much of a dialogue other than, I think, one MPP. Actually, the MPP from this region, so South Simcoe, was quite receptive to it in that she was going to come for a visit, but that visit never materialized, and that was two years ago. But the invitation is still open. <laughs> Great. Well, I mean, sorry? I'm not sure she's an MPP anymore after the last election. Yeah, there was a lot of change. There was a lot of shuffle. So uh, you're basically, you're an entrepreneur. So for any entrepreneurs listening and, yeah, entrepreneurs interested in food and other entrepreneurs as well, what advice do you have about people interested in entrepreneurship? I think the first thing to do for an entrepreneur is to look for opportunity. And when I look at the food system in Ontario, I see a lot of opportunity. The first and foremost one that comes to mind would be import replacement. When I walk into a supermarket, I kind of get very frustrated quickly (laughs) when I see organic pizza from California in the freezer in an Ontario supermarket. Because I look at that product and I say to myself, everything there can be made here. And I, I have a tough time understanding why that doesn't happen. Because if I look at that product being made in California and shipped to Ontario, it's not very organic or healthy for the ecology of the planet to ship frozen pizza from California to Ontario that's made with organic ingredients. I think that's the first thing is look at what we're importing and we still import a lot of food. And this is going to become more prevalent the more and more we have the Looney Tune in the White House where he comes out and says, you know, 25% tariff on strawberries. Strawberries are in the supermarket right now in Ontario because they're grown here and this is the season. But 10 months out of the year, those strawberries are coming from the United States. So, you know, looking at something like strawberries, you know, as an example, obviously would involve greenhouses because of the seasonal challenges of growing in Ontario. But there's so many other products from pasta. For example, there's still a heck of a lot of pasta that I see in the supermarket that is made abroad. And ironically, some of that pasta, particularly the pasta that comes from Italy, for example, contains Canadian wheat. (laughs) So all that value added of a Canadian product is done outside of Canada. And that would be another example would be pretzels. A lot of the pretzels that you buy in Ontario are not made in Ontario. And we have all the resources and capabilities of making those pretzels right here, right now. And we've like hard pretzels. Yeah, hard hard pretzels. Um, you've seen some improvement in the availability of corn chips in Ontario, which is wonderful. There's a couple of companies that I know um, against the grain farm in eastern Ontario produces beautiful heritage corn chips. And there's another company not too far from here called Albalisa that also makes artisanal corn chips. So it can be done. And so there's an opportunity right there, pretzels. Interesting. Okay, so look for opportunities, see what's out there, look at the markets, and uh, look for how you can do things here. Anything else um, apart from that? There's obviously a lot more than finding the opportunity. Do you have any other advice for entrepreneurs? Walk through farmer's markets walk through supermarkets and see what people are buying you know you're obviously in the supermarket for a reason or at the farmer's market to buy yourself but when I'm in the supermarket lineup and if I'm waiting especially I'll look what's ahead of me and what's behind me you know sometimes they probably think I'm a food freak because I'm looking at I'm looking at the food (laughs) I'm not I'm just doing a simple bit of research (laughs) 
I look at the shelves and you can tell on the shelves what's moving and what's not, especially if it's um, they're not being stocked regularly. So little things like that I pick up on and talk when you're in a restaurant, talk to the you know the chef if he's available ask him these questions you're in a hotel of course there's a restaurant in the hotel most cases just ask questions like you're out for dinner oh you know where are these greens from in my salad it's a lovely salad you know and when businesses start realizing that their customers are more awake they're going to pay more attention to where their food's coming from because it's easy to pick up the phone and call the industrial food supplier who brings his truck and drops everything off and cardboard boxes for you. It's very convenient, it's very easy, it's a one-stop shop. But when you open those boxes, you're not exactly getting the most ecological or tasty product that you can. And I think it's just choice. It comes down to consumer choice, consumer availability, and food is changing. Amazon now owns Whole Food. I think we can do all of those things better and more healthy and leave out the artificial colors, which are so dangerous particularly to our youth, but none of these dangers are put on the food label. You know, we need to know what food is not genetically modified. Right now, the only way we can tell is by choosing organic, because in organic food production, you cannot use genetically modified ingredients. But in other food products, you don't know. If you buy a box of breakfast cereal, you don't know if those cornflakes are made from triple stack gene genetically modified corn or if it's from an older variety of a heritage corn. And consumers need to ask those questions and pressure government to make more of that information, that important information, available. We have warning labels on cigarettes, but we don't have warning labels on basic foodstuffs. That really is a good point. Yeah, something to think about for sure. Well, it's been a great pleasure chatting with you, and I'm happy to be here at the mill. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add today? I think... One thing I would add is the most important thing we have as individual consumers is our purchasing choice. And it really does make a lot of sense to say that, you know, you get the food system that you buy regularly. So if you're, you know, finding yourself more and more at farmer's markets, for example, to get your greens when they're in season, or to find out or locate that farmer who raises chickens in a natural way, and supporting them, even when farmers' market seasons end, you still visit the farm you know, two or three times during the off-season and buy what you need. You're supporting a food system, and without that support, those operations just simply disappear. Mm-hmm. So the more and more we go to big box stores, the less and less choice we're going to ultimately have in the food that we're going to have available. Vote with your dollars. So... It's been great chatting with you, and for anyone interested, you can find Mark on Instagram, and his ha- his handle, rather, is... Captain Flower. Captain Flower with a K. And also, you can visit his website, k2milling.com, and you can find him on Facebook as well. And he posts wonderful photos of his grains and the flowers as well, the grains that are about to be milled. So thank you so much. Thank you. And that was my interview with Mark Hayhoe of K2 Milling. And that took place right in his mill in Beaton, Ontario. And wasn't that just great? I really enjoyed chatting with him. I'll put the link to his website on my website, marywales.com forward slash episode three. And I'll also include the link to his Instagram. And if you'd like to join the Food and Life community, that's on Facebook. It's a Facebook group, Food and Life. 
feel free to also follow me on Instagram. I'll be posting food photos from my food and travels and food and working around the world. If you like this episode, please head over to iTunes and leave me a review. I hope you have a wonderful and inspired day. 